This is Catholic Daily Brief. Before we begin, please consider becoming a member at my Patreon, patreon.com slash catholicdailybrief. The link is available in the description of this podcast. Episode 21. What is the difference between Catholic and Protestant Bibles? You might remember in the episode called, Where Does the Bible Come From?, I mentioned that the main difference is in the Old Testament canon, or the Old Testament list of books present in the Catholic and Protestant Bibles as we have them today. The New Testament is the same. The same 27 books of the New Testament are present in both versions of the Bible, whereas the Old Testament differs by seven books. In the Catholic Old Testament, there are 46. In the Protestant Old Testament, there are 39. And when I say version, this is what I'm referring to, just the difference between the canons of Scripture, because we know there are countless versions or translations of Scripture that you can find nowadays, but we're just referring here to the basic fact of the list of books, the difference in the list of books between those two versions, Catholic and Protestant. The full history of the development of these two canons is much longer and more involved than I'm able to go into here in 15 minutes, and more than I'm qualified to go into. I'm not a historian. I'm not a biblical critic. I don't really have the, the competence to present all of the details of this long and involved history. What I will do is present what I think are the strongest arguments for the validity of the Catholic canon versus the Protestant canon. That is that the seven books excluded in the Protestant canon ought to be included based on various factors that I'll, I'll go into here. The reason this episode is where it is in the order of episodes is because I think the strongest argument is based on the authority of the church founded by Christ. Assuming we've made a convincing argument that the church instituted by Christ is the Catholic Church as it is now, and if you didn't listen to those episodes, I think it's important to listen to those first before listening to this one. Because I think the first and strongest argument is, if in fact Christ instituted a church that he promised to be with until the end of the age, that he promised the Holy Spirit would guide it into all truth, and that the gates of the netherworld would not prevail against it, that whoever hears his church hears him, then when that church canonizes a certain list of books, then that itself is proof that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, these are the books that we consider to be inspired by God and necessary for our salvation. We already noted how the way that the Bible developed was not some committee decision. Right? It was the fruit of the living tradition of the church. The scripture's presence in her liturgy that primarily was the reason over time the church accepted some books and not others. And so the development of the canon is not some cut-and-dry decision that happened at one point in history. It was the fruit of the life of the church. And we mentioned that we only saw a first canon listed in the late 4th century, some of the early synods and councils, and that this was reiterated over time in various other councils. But that's not to say that there was always some strict agreement on a list of books before that point. It's a messier history than one might think. 
because we have a nice bound copy of the Bible now, we tend to think that at some point someone just decided this and put it all together. But it's much more involved than that. That's why I think the best argument is the authority of the church as the bride of Christ, as the body of Christ, as the continuation of the incarnation of Jesus that speaks for him by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and that those things that are necessary for our salvation will not be lacking. There will be no room for human error there. Given the importance of the inspired word of God, it makes sense that this is not something God would leave up to the mere decisions of men, that it would be something that he would ensure by his providence. So that would be the main and first and strongest argument, in my opinion, of the authenticity of the 46-book Old Testament canon rather than the 39-book Old Testament canon. So how did these two canons develop? Why was there a discrepancy of seven books in the canon? Well, this is where we get into the long history before the time of Christ to look at what versions of scripture the Jews were using. And in general, this can be broken down into what's called the Palestinian canon and the Alexandrian canon. When the Jews were taken captive and dispersed throughout various parts of the world, at that point, that area of the world was highly Hellenized or Greek-speaking, imbued with Greek language and culture, primarily because of Alexander the Great and his conquests. And so spending, living a long time away from Jerusalem, many of the Jews spoke primarily Greek. And in the mid-3rd century BC, there was a decision to translate the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, into Greek. And this was done by 70 men. That's why it's called the Septuagint. It's just the Greek word for 70. And they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And that Greek version of the Jewish scriptures, called the Septuagint, included those seven books that are present in our Old Testament, which are not present in the Protestant Old Testament. So that's referred to as the Alexandrian canon, because the translation was done in Alexandria by the 70. So what is the Palestinian canon? Well, the theory goes that in Palestine, that is in Hebrew-speaking world, where the Jews were also, they had a different canon which didn't accept works in Greek, as the Alexandrian canon did. And so the theory is that the Alexandrian canon and the Palestinian canon are different because of mainly that language difference and the decision to restrict Hebrew scriptures to books actually written in Hebrew. Now, this vision of things is obviously oversimplified. As I said, the history is much longer and more complicated. And there's a couple issues with that theory now given certain findings. So first let's list what these seven books are. They're called deuterocanonical books by Catholics and apocryphal by Protestants. So these seven books are Tobias, Judith, Baruch, Sirach, Wisdom, First and Second Maccabees, and then certain portions of the books of Esther and Daniel. So the problem with this distinction merely based on language is that it's since been shown that while it was thought that these books were originally written in Greek and so they were excluded from the Palestinian canon, we now know that all of them, and the only ones we don't have proof for are uh, Wisdom and Second Maccabees, 
were originally written in Hebrew. So they probably originated in Palestine. And in Jerusalem, or around Jerusalem, it was also quite Hellenized or Greek-speaking there. A large number of Jews in Palestine spoke Greek, and that it's been speculated that this Greek version of the Old Testament, Septuagint, was probably read in some of the Palestinian synagogues. Parts of the Septuagint were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran, so it was known and used in Palestine during the time immediately preceding Christ's coming and immediately after. So it's not as if there was some strict difference between uh, the Jews of Palestine and the Jews of the Diaspora, or those scattered into other lands, Greek-speaking lands. There was no strict distinction. The, again, the whole thing was more confused and complicated than that. There was no universal consensus on the books of the Old Testament. There was no Jewish canon that was settled by the time of Christ. So the question isn't uh, an argument about who has the older or more widely accepted canon by the Jews. Remember that the Christian covenant is a fulfillment of the covenant of the people of Israel. And so whether or not the Jewish people were themselves unanimous on what was the accepted canon, the question is, do we see evidence in the New Testament, in the words of Christ and his apostles, the writers of the New Testament, about what works were considered inspired, and then also looking at the testimony of the early church fathers, which ones were considered inspired, because again, this is not a settled question, at the very least, until the late 4th century. So the fact that there's disputes and all that shouldn't trouble us. Again, this is a process of the living tradition of the church. When we're talking about what's inspired scripture, it's not merely a historical or textual criticism question. It's a question of the church and her judgment, which is, which is guided by the Holy Spirit. There are even some indications that the Palestinian canon took root in the first couple centuries precisely because the scribes and Pharisees saw that the early Christians were using the Septuagint and so, obviously as an act of opposition, claimed that it was a perversion of the real Old Testament. So just as a reminder, as we look at references to these seven Old Testament books, references to them within the New Testament, that these books are Daniel, Baruch, Tobit, Judith, Sirach, Wisdom, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, and there are about 300 references to the Septuagint within the New Testament. In other words, it seems that the scripture writers were using primarily the Septuagint there in the first century in Palestine, and that that was the primary text, and that uh, even Christ himself, quoting the Old Testament, seems to use the Septuagint version. Of course, not as if Christ is referring to a text. He's God. He knows all. His words are the words of God. So let's take an example of the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. He says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Which is taken as a reference to the book of Wisdom, chapter 16, verse 26. Your children, whom you love, O Lord, might learn that it is not the production of crops that feeds humankind, but that your word sustains those who trust in you. So wisdom being a deuterocanonical book, or one of those seven books, is quoted by Christ. Again in the Gospel of Matthew, and Christ is teaching his apostles how to pray, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, seems to be a reference to, or informed by, 1 Maccabees chapter 3, verse 60, But as his will in heaven may be, so shall he do. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Reference that with Judith, chapter 11, verse 19. You will drive them like a sheep that have no shepherd. So those are just a couple examples of sayings kind of implicitly referencing books in the uh, deuterocanonical list. 
But there are also explicit quotations from the Septuagint, not necessarily from the, those seven books of the Deuterocanonical list, but from the Septuagint itself, which had the Deuterocanonical books. So, for example, in Matthew 1, verse 23, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. That's a translation in the Septuagint. In Hebrew, it's Behold, a young woman shall conceive. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, and also again in chapter 12, verse 7, which is from quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In the Hebrew, it's I desire goodness, not sacrifice. Matthew 12, verse 21, quoting Isaiah 42, 4, in his name will the Gentiles hope or trust. In Hebrew, it's the isles shall wait for his law. In Matthew 13, 15, quoting Isaiah 6, 10, heart grown dull, eyes have closed to heal. Hebrew, heart is fat, ears are heavy, eyes are shut, be healed. Matthew 21, verse 16, quoting Psalm 8, 2, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfect praise. In Hebrew, it's thou hast established strength. So there's a whole long list of all these, both quotes from the Septuagint and also, as we were doing before, quotes in the New Testament referencing books in the Deuterocanonical list, those seven books that are not present in the Protestant Old Testament. If you look at scripturecatholic.com and look up uh, the Septuagint quotes from the New Testament, you'll get a whole long list. Also, if you look at Jimmy Aiken, A-K-I-N, he has a whole list of all of the references to the Deuterocanonical books that you can find in the New Testament. And taking all of that along with the fact that the Septuagint is the oldest translation we have of Hebrew scriptures, so it has a kind of preeminence on that front, that it was quoted by the apostles and Christ, and that it was the Old Testament accepted by the church instituted by Christ, those seem to be, aside from all of the complicated history, which you're free to go down that rabbit hole and study that if you'd like, there's nothing wrong with that, but those seem to be the strongest arguments, that Christ's church accepted that Old Testament canon and not the other, that Christ and the apostles were familiar and used almost exclusively Septuagint in their language in the New Testament, and that the church went on to repeatedly ratify and canonize this list of Old Testament books in her ecumenical councils, which we claim enjoy the authority of the Holy Spirit to prevent the church from erring. I said I'd go over the fathers of the church, but we're kind of out of time. Maybe on another episode we'll do that. But keep in mind that since we've gotten to this point by showing that Christ is God and he instituted a church and the early church appears to be the same as the church as it is now, that this is the main reason that we accept the 46-book Old Testament canon rather than the 39-book Old Testament canon. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. Please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and give a five-star rating. God bless.